Good morning once again on this beautiful Christmas Eve morning. Well, I would like to mention my dearly departed mother-in-law this morning, Doris Duple. Some of you knew her. She came here years before I ever set foot in the place. And for years, Doris had this Christmas tradition that I don't know exactly when it originated. I don't think she did it the last several years of her life, I, I believe. But all of the Duple children and those that they were married to or engaged to through the course of time, we all got this giant Christmas stocking that Doris and Bruce, when he was alive, stuffed full of, ton of tons of stuff. They were exceedingly generous people, and uh, I, I miss them both very much. Well, <clears throat> one thing that Doris would do, and I'm sure that maybe Jesus wouldn't have approved of this, but one of the stocking stuffers was scratch-off lottery tickets. Now, there was nobody in the house that was, you know, had a gambling problem or was doing gambling, and, you know, you can say, all right, this is a little bit flawed, maybe. It might be a flawed way to do Christmas. But you know what? I give Doris grace. There was a lot of, well, a lot of laughter around that sort of thing. There is a lot of good, fond memories that came from it. And that was her intention. Her intention was very good. And uh, I don't recall ever winning much of anything. But sometimes somebody would win, and it was... Yeah, Ray, you know, people would, would cheer, and it was, a, it was fond memories, and all the joking and everything else that went on around it. Well, you can say that that was a little bit flawed, but let's give Doris grace on that. Her intentions were good. There was no harm intended. Uh, it was literally just for fun. But at the same time, people have a tendency sometimes when looking at somebody trying to do a good thing, and just immediately pointing out the flaws in that one good thing that they did. Oh, what's wrong with that? Let me give you another example. And the reason I'm going here is because the title of today's message is, What are the chances? What are the chances? And so when you play the lottery, especially when you're playing for those big lottery jackpots, your chances of winning are so remote, so remote, but yet there are all kinds of people, especially when the jackpots get gigantic, who will go out and buy a ticket or two figuring, eh, it's only a couple of bucks. It's worth a shot, you know. Well, again, I don't condone that sort of thing, but I do understand. Well, there's another thing from hist Christian history, a man named Blaise Pascal from the 1600s, also known as the 17th century, he had something known as Pascal's Wager. It was in a book that was actually published posthumously after he died. Now, Blaise was a brilliant man. He was a scientist, a mathematician, a philosopher, and a theologian. He knew and loved the Lord. And he was dealing with people who he was trying to win over to Christ, who simply did not believe in God. And so to try to get them 
to believe, or at least start thinking that it's at least reasonable and rational to believe, he came up with Pascal's wager. Now here's Stan's version of how it goes. It is better in this wager to live according to God's principles, endeavoring to try to believe in him, if it ends up in the end that you gambled wrongly, you didn't really lose anything if God doesn't exist. But on the flip side of the wager, if you live your life as you please, as though no God exists, ignoring all of his commandments, not believing in Jesus as the Savior, and so forth and so on, then the consequences, if God exists are horrific because you will spend eternity in hell. Now, again, his intentions were good. Ultimately, theologically, apologetically, I can throw out a couple of other multisyllabic words that make me sound smart. I'm not that smart. But <clears throat> the truth is that there are flaws with it. There are flaws with, Pas with Pascal's wager. But it still does get to a point. It makes you think, doesn't it? So despite all the flaws, and I've listened to them, I've read them, there are theologians and apologists and plenty of people who I love and respect who say, don't use that in your witnessing and in your apologetics because it's flawed. And I get it. I get it. But still, it makes you think, doesn't it? And I think that Blaze knew the flaws in it. Pascal knew the flaws in it because he was a, one of the most brilliant men of history. So I don't think it was lost on him. Well, I bring that to you to tell you that we're also going to be discussing the chances, the odds, sort of a wager, if you will, of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecy that was laid out in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Now, mind you, some of the numbers here, the numbers get a little iffy, but in, in general, I'll cover just the general numbers and not get too, too specific for you. But before I get too much further into it, let us read. Read with me, if you will, this first screen. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. That is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. So what are your chances? What are your chances? Well, first we're going to be talking about the chances. We'll get to what are your chances at the tail end. Let us begin with Jesus speaking of himself and how the scriptures mention him. Read with me, if you will, from Luke 24, verse 25. And then he said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who should have known who had all, they had the, the equivalent of PhDs in theology they should have known. But, you see, 
you can be super smart and educated and have all your ducks in a row in that respect and still be wrong. Also, from the same chapter, Jesus said, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is Jesus speaking of here? He's speaking of Old Testament Scripture, speaking of him. I move quickly. Now, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this, You examine the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is those very Scriptures that testify about me. And I must correct myself, it is this verse that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. Okay? So again, the emphasis here is Jesus is talking about Scripture, talking about Him. All right? That's where we're going here, in case I get a little distracted and go astray. Now, let's look at one of the first prophecies that we've heard in sermons just right here in the last few weeks. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Read with me if you will. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. I spoke on this just a few weeks ago. Now you know that the world and those who are enemies of God will always come up with arguments and so forth and so on, speaking against why something means a certain thing. Well, in fact, I've gone through that to some extent in the past. I'm here to tell you that a relatively irrefutable argument can be made that the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. Okay? <clears throat> and I could spend a six-week series of sermons in here explaining to you why that is. I will not do that to you, at least not right now. So, the Lord himself, behold, a virgin will conceive. How does that happen? It's supernatural, of course. And will give birth to a son. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. Amen, brothers and sisters. All right, let's look at the next where it is fulfilled. Now, by the way, before I get into this, you notice in verse 23 where it shows the capitalized letters? That is something that the NASB translation always does when it is quoting an Old Testament scripture. One of the tools that I like about the NASB. You don't have to like the NASB along with me. This is not a law. I'm not telling you if you read some other translation, you're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. This is why I prefer NASB. You know, through the course of several months here, I preach from a number of different translations. So I'm not legalistic in that in that concern. Now, let's get back to the topic at hand and read this. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which translate means God with us. Okay, we've been down this road, haven't we? I'm just pointing out just a few of the prophecies. I've kept it simple because for the purpose of brevity and clarity, we're only in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and where prophecy was fulfilled just there. There's only five of them we're going through, excuse me, this morning. 
But you know that biblical scholars agree that over 300 Old Testament prophecies of Jesus either were fulfilled or are fulfilled. Now those are general prophecies. And prophecies come in different categories. There are Old Testament types where, for instance, um, an event took place, the prophet wrote about that something about that event, and we'll get into that in a, in a minute. Um, <clears throat> and so there is the first instance of what the prophet is writing about. All right, That's that first most immediate event that he's writing about. But that event is a foreshadowing of an event to come far in the future. And that is the case here. That is a typical case with Old Testament types. Sometimes it is speaking of a person, sometimes it is of an event, and so we move on. Micah 5.2, Old Testament prophecy, read with me. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, from the days of old. There's a term used in the Hebrew from the days of eternity, speaking of time that we cannot number, which is beyond the vanishing point, the Hebrew word means. It's beyond, it's in eternity past. It is beyond anything we can even understand. The human mind is incapable of grasping the concept of eternity. Okay? Sometimes people ask, well, if God is the cause of all that happened, what caused God? Nothing caused God. God has always been. Huh? I can't wrap my big fat head around that. But God has always been, in fact, one of the names for him is the self-existent one. We are all dependent creatures, dependent upon God's grace and provision to exist. God needs nothing outside. He is self-existent. And he is from eternity. And Christ himself is from eternity. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on, I think in verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and that is what we are celebrating here at Christmas time. And again, back to this Old Testament prophecy. The specifics, Bethlehem, and I don't even know how to pronounce that second one. Maybe somebody here does. Ephrathah, I, 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 I sound like I'm... I, I, I won't go down that. I'm trying to make a joke there, and I realize it's probably not going to be funny. <clears throat> but it's specific. There are two Bethlehems. There was a Bethlehem up north, uh, Jebulun, and the Bethlehem down south, which is this one. This is Bethlehem. The house of bread city is the name. So it's very specific. Now this is a prophecy hundreds of years in advance of it taking place. 600, 700, somewhere in that vicinity. So what are the odds? What are the chances? Let's move it along. Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Read with me. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. 
For this is what has been written by the prophet. Now, who is this? This was Herod talking to the scribes. Okay, why? Because the Magi, which I just talked about, came into town seeking the king of the Jews. And of course, Herod the Great went, what are you talking about? I'm king of the Jews. I won't get back into that sermon, but that was the deal, all right? Let's look next at this next verse. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay? This, capitalized like the Nazbi does, from the Old Testament, which we just read. Again, prophecy being fulfilled. I move on. Hosea 11.1, one of the next prophecies we cover. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Again, this is an Old Testament type of prophecy. Type meaning a foreshadowing. Okay? But then we move to its fulfillment. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Remember, I talked about that, all right? I talked before about how we're gonna, we took those individual sermons, we're going to sew them all together like a quilt. My wife is an avid quilter, and I don't think she's impressed with my uh, analogy, but <clears throat> anyway... I tried. So <clears throat> there's an ugly, obviously there's an ugly part to this prophecy, isn't there? It's very ugly. Let's... So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened so that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. Again, prophecy being fulfilled. Now this took place probably about two years later. By this time, Jesus was probably somewhere between three and a half and four years of age. Jeremiah 31.15 spoke of this. Let's read. This is what the Lord said. A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamenting and bitter, sweep. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is clearly written as a prophecy. Now, there was a specific event at that time. The Babylonians were coming in, I don't know, 600s, 500 BC. I, I can't remember the exact date. Um, and they were hauling people off captive back to Babylon. And just a few miles out of uh, Jerusalem uh, or Bethlehem, uh, they were, uh, they'd have the staging area where they would separate the children from the parents, and there would be weeping and great screaming and hollering. Can you imagine, if you are a parent, having your child forcibly taken away from you, probably never to see them again, and then being led off to Babylon. Well, this was seared in the memory of Israel 
Rachel being the mother of two of the twelve children of uh, Jacob became Israel. Uh, of course, two tribes named after those children, and Rachel died in the in the birth of uh, Benjamin, I believe. And uh, so this is seared in the memory of is- Israel's people, the Jewish people. And so Rachel, it's speaking symbolically of Israel, okay? Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Can you imagine the horror of that? Putting all the boys two years and younger to the sword. He didn't even live more than another couple of years. That's evil. That's the evil system of the world, the serpent himself in control of a man trying to stop the plan of God. But as you will see by the fulfillment of prophecy, that no matter how much evil in the world rages against the kingdom of God, doing everything it can in its own knowledge and power to stop God's plan and purpose and will, it cannot. It cannot. And it shows itself to be darkness in contrast to God's light evil in contrast to God's goodness. And God came and became flesh to save his people from this. Next we read, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Again, prophecy fulfilled, foretold hundreds of years in advance, and fulfilled here in Matthew. And finally, from Isaiah chapter 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Isaiah 53, 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. God had intended to make Jesus as unremarkable as he could possibly be, apart from those things that he had for Jesus to do, that Jesus did do, and in fulfilling prophecy. So we look at the next verse. So Joseph got up took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea 
in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and settled in a city called Nazareth. This happened so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Okay. How we came about, there's no specific Old Testament prophecy that mentions Nazareth per se. But to cut the explanation a little bit short, because I could get involved with it, it is from that word, that, from that tender shoot, that sprout, that thing coming up. It comes from a word that if we were to abbreviate that word in the Hebrew, the equivalent of it to us would be NZR, which people believe is what, mean, what this means, that, that it was pointing to Nazareth, the word for that tender shoot and for Nazareth is similar in the Hebrew language, if I remember correctly. But it speaks here clearly. It was a generally believed, and it's also possible that it was an ancient prophecy that didn't make it into the canon of Scripture. I'm not certain of that. Nobody is 100% certain. There are several theories, and it's quite a little research project to get into that. But clearly, Holy Scripture has decided that this is, in fact, the case. And I trust the inerrancy of Scripture in this. Um, I've studied studied it and read all about it, and I can tell you that uh, some of you would be fascinated. Uh, Some of you not so much. Move it on, Stan. Move it along. So, this happened so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Again, prophecy fulfilled. Now, by the way, he will be called a Nazarene. That's not a nice term. It's a derogatory term. Remember in the Gospel of John, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was not considered a nice place, and anybody that came from there was looked down upon. So to call Jesus a Nazarene was a derogatory term. Unlike the song, people were not saying, oh, what a nice boy. Okay, They probably were not saying that, even though he was, I'm certain, sinless, and was, in fact, a very nice boy. Certain people might... Can you imagine being the younger brother or sister of Jesus and hearing Mary and Joseph say, why can't you be more like Jesus? He always does what we tell him to do. Okay, dumb joke. But anyway, you know what I mean. So... I bring all of this up because I'm asking the question, what are the chances? What are the odds? Well, in fact, there are 300 general prophecies. There are over 100 specific prophecies, very specific prophecies fulfilled by Christ, either fulfilled in his first advent or will be fulfilled in his second coming probability of someone fulfilling eight scriptures. Well, I want to tell you about a doctor. I don't know if he was a doctor, but he was a professor stoner. He was chairman of science of the science division at Westmont College and also chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College before he died in 1980 at the ancient age of 92, I believe. 
This was a man who loved the Lord, but was also a scientist, a mathematician. He authored a book called Science Speaks. You can look it up on the internet. I have the PDF on my phone, and if any of you want it, I will send it to you. He goes through this book that is I, it, not even a very long book, maybe 70-something pages. And in chapter 3 of that book, he looks at Christ in prophecy. And again, I mentioned how there may have been flaws in Doris's approach to showing love and creating fun, uh, how Blaise Pascal may have had some flaws in his argument, which I'm sure he knew about, but he had a point and a purpose. Well, this gentleman, the same thing. Calculating probabilities is extremely difficult, especially in this particular case. However, he intentionally engaged, and this study was done in the mid-1940s, by the way, he intentionally engaged over the course of a year, over the, over the spread of 12 different college classes, approximately 600 advanced mathematics students to try to calculate the probability. And they intentionally went extremely conservative in these numbers that you see here on the screen. Now, are there flaws? Yes, there probably are flaws. It is the nature of calculating probabilities. But in order to not be exaggerating, because this is also a man of God, and these were students in Bible colleges, actually, in Christian colleges, excuse me, and so they genuinely wanted to be, they didn't want to overstate their case. They didn't want to look like they were exaggerating things in order to make their case. So in many of these numbers, especially the start off, they took uh, all of these have the, the probabilities according to their mathematical skills and so forth. The likelihood of Micah 5.2 being fulfilled is 1 in 2.8 times 10 to the fifth power. Now, how do you understand that? You multiply 2.8 times that 10 to the fifth power. Whenever you see that little exponent number up on the right, it means basically one and five zeros to the side of it, okay? So the likelihood of that prophecy being fulfilled hundreds of years later, as specifically as it was, is pretty small, wouldn't you agree? Okay, in Malachi 3.1, 1 in 10 to the third power. Now these numbers, in many cases, and I don't recall all of them, you can read it in the study. Again, I'll send it to you. You can get it online, it's not that hard. 10 to the third power, that's a thousand. Okay, 1 in a thousand. I believe in that case, it was actually 1 in 10,000 that they calculated. But in order to make it so that they're shrinking the numbers so as not to be so astronomic and look like they were exaggerating things, they intentionally cut it way back, okay? They wanted to be as conservative as possible. Again, I move on. Zechariah 9.9, 1 in 10 to the second power, 1 in 100, okay? Zechariah 13.6, 1 in 10 to the third power, or in other words, one in a thousand. Zechariah 11.2, one in 10 to the third power, one in a thousand. 11.3, one in 10 to the fifth power, that's, that's one in 10,000, okay? Or 100,000. Yeah, one in 100,000, excuse me. I get myself a little confused. If you 
do like I do and torture yourself and go and watch my sermons after the fact, you'll see me misspeak with great regularity. Last week I kept saying divinity when I meant to mean divination. I, every time I saw that, I was like, oh, it just made me cringe. I, I do that. I, I do that. I apologize for that. Isaiah 53, 7, odds for that are one, a thousand, and so forth. You get the point, right? Okay, now what are the odds calculated out of fulfilling all eight prophecies? One man fulfilling all eight prophecies. The odds of fulfilling all, all eight prophecies are one in ten to the seventeenth power. Okay? Just eight of them. Now, mind you, there are over 300 general prophecies and over 100 specific prophecies. The odds of fulfilling 16, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. 45 zeros after that one. I don't even know what you call that number, do you? Okay? The odds of fulfilling 48 prophecy, mind you, there's 300 of them. There's 109 of them specific according to one count, 102 by another count. Depends on who you're talking to. But it's over 100 specific. The odds of fulfilling 48 prophecies, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, you can knock those numbers down a lot before you start getting me concerned about whether or not the Bible is true. Is that not proof of Scripture being true? Is it not proof that Jesus is the Messiah? Oh, well, you know, I've seen people, I've, I've actually, I spent some time way back when in the army, I spent a lot of time talking this sort of thing with a person. I don't think it was a good idea, but I learned a hard lesson. There are certain people it doesn't matter how much evidence you pile up in front of them. It doesn't matter what you lay out for them. You can lay out all of the evidence to pr essentially prove the case, and they will not accept it. They will not accept Christ. It's a fact. But here is what I know, speaking of odds. What are the odds that if, according to Scripture, you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart. What are the odds that you will be saved? According to Scripture, 100%. Now let me tell you, if you are speaking to someone, the Scripture says that the, the Father is calling people to Jesus, correct? Calling him to Christ, it says. Now, if he is calling them to Christ and they are ready to come to Christ, when you bear witness to them about Jesus, about what he's done in your life, things like this that you can talk about, what are the odds that they are going to come to Jesus? A hundred percent. A hundred percent that they will come to Jesus. When you are sharing Jesus with someone who is being called to Jesus, they will come to Jesus. Now maybe they won't do it that day. Maybe they won't do it for years. But eventually, 
You scattering the seed like that draws people to Jesus. So here's what I'm telling you. What are the chances if you share Jesus by sharing those, some of those tracts out there, some of the Gospels of John, I got a bunch more down in the basement I keep forgetting to bring up. They're all free, okay? I'll put as many in your hands as you want to hand out. Now, if you're going to take a stack of 50 of them, take them home and set them on the nightstand and they never move from there, then I, I don't want you to take them, all right? But you don't have to be pushy about it. You don't have to be obnoxious. When you have the opportunity and you can share those things, do it. You can't fail. You understand? What are the odds? I've just told you the odds, haven't I? And I'm asking you to seek and save the lost as Jesus came to do. Well, what does he say? He says to go into the world in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. He says later on you baptize them. But before that, what do you do? You make disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, first of all, you've got to introduce them to Jesus. If they're going to become a disciple of Jesus, you've got to first introduce them to Jesus. And then the discipling comes from there. What's a disciple? A student, a learner, a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you a student, a follower, learning of Jesus Christ? I hope you are. I think you are. I think the odds are pretty good if you're here that you are. Okay? So I close with that. But I just wanted to mention... What are the chances? What are the chances? Is there any doubt left in any of your minds that Jesus Christ is Lord? This is who we are celebrating the birth of. And he came to save you. And you know, he didn't save you just once. He's saving you now. Did you know that? He's saving you even now. You know, a favorite of devotional that Pastor Ron Emeritus, Pastor, Emerit, Pastor Emeritus, excuse me, introduced to us a few years ago. Uh, it's easily one of my favorite, if not my favorite devotional. And what's it called, everyone? New Morning Mercies. Paul David Tripp nails it so well, so much of the time, does he not? Can I get an amen? I knew I'd hear Ron do an amen on that. After we celebrate Christmas comes the new year. So let me close with this. I want you to think about maybe a new devotional. There's a lot of them that are free online, you know. If you have trouble getting into the Word by yourself, I want to encourage you to get what I call a Bible buddy. Somebody just to read the Bible with, if no other way is available, over the phone that you can do this, I would prefer, daily. But if you can't do it daily, as often as you can. As many times a week as you possibly can. 15 minutes, 20 minutes over the phone, reading God's Word. It will change your life. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And there's more to that, and that's going to be on the screen starting in the new year, in addition to what we have. Because the Word of God is absolutely reliable, and this is proof, and Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message this morning. I ask in Jesus' name that you bless these people with memory, with power from on high to not be bashful, to be bold in their witness of Jesus. Because, Father, you have called us to go unto all the world, to go into the nations and to make disciples, that that was called the Great Commission. It's a commandment. We are co-missioned with Jesus. And Father, I ask that you get us excited about getting out there and sharing Jesus because time is running out. Time is running out. Help us understand the urgency of sharing Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.